Amen. Please open with me in God's Word to John chapter 4. John 4, as we continue our series, Meeting with God in Worship, and our look at corporate worship or the worship of God's people through Christ as we gather together as a church. So, John chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. And while you're turning there, I wonder how many of us have wanted to visit the Holy Land. Of course, it's a very popular destination for Christians to visit. Uh, many Christians want to go over there and uh, be where Jesus was to see the sights that they read about in Scripture. After all, you can tour the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where many believe is the very place where Jesus was crucified. Or they'll go to the Holy Land and walk the Stations of the Cross, where uh, in Jerusalem there in the Via Della Rosa, where you follow in the footsteps of Jesus as He walked His path to be crucified. If you go to the Holy Land, you could go to the very place where Jesus supposedly uh, met with his disciples for the Last Supper. You could visit the upper room. Or many today will go and be baptized in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. Some will even go to Bethlehem and see the Church of the Nativity where Jesus was born. It's why Holy Land tours have become a multi-billion dollar industry with many Christians saving so that they can fly over to the Middle East where they believe they will draw near to God by visiting where Jesus lived and ultimately died on the cross. But is this how we draw near to God? When John 4 we have Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman, and through their conversation, he reveals that true worship does not depend on where we worship, but on how we worship. So let's then read together John 4, uh, towards the end of this discussion, this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. So we'll read together then verses 19 to 24 where the woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Well, brothers and sisters, as we reflect on these verses and hear from God through these verses, let us... Once again, pray to our great and glorious God. Father, once more we are gathered in your presence. 
to hear from you as your word is preached. And so we pray that you will indeed so bless these words through the power of your spirit. That we will not only understand these truths, but we will receive them and rejoice in them because of how precious Christ is to those who are saved. And because our very souls have become so gripped with salvation, we are those who will truly worship you in spirit and truth. So help us then, Father, to know and to learn from this amazing encounter with Jesus and, and an unnamed Samaritan woman so that we can live in light of this encounter to worship you and bringing you glory. So we pray these things then in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what is true worship? We find here is true worship must be in spirit and truth. The true worship of God must be in spirit and truth. And this unfolds through Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman here in three steps. We, we see first asking, then followed by answering, and then following, and then followed finally by announcing. So you have the asking about true worship in verses 19 to 20, followed by the answering of true worship in 21 and 22, and then finally the announcing of true worship in verses 23 and 24. So let's take the first step together then, where we read of the woman asking about true worship in these verses. Of course, as the chapter begins, Jesus has left Judea in the south of the land, and he is heading north towards Galilee. But on the way, he, of course, goes through Samaria. And he stops then in the city of Sychar, which is the place where their patriarch Jacob, centuries ago, had bought some land. And it's where the bones of his son Joseph were eventually buried. It's here that Jacob also dug a well to provide his family with water through a deep hole, which had then remained through the centuries. You see, as Jesus is traveling and he stops there around noon, he had become weary and tired. And he was thirsty in the heat of the day. So he stopped and sat by this well. And while he was sitting there, we read of a Samaritan woman who then comes to draw water out of the well, and Jesus asks her to give him a drink, which then begins this discussion, which concludes with our passage. Now, of course, this woman would have been shocked when Jesus talks to her and asks for a drink. After all, there's been bad blood between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. Samaritans were despised by Jews. They were seen as half-breeds. The Samaritans used to be part of the Jewish people in the United Kingdom, but they had so corrupted the sacrifice of God as they set up idols on their mountains and as they intermarried among the peoples of the area that they were no longer considered Jews at all. 
Jesus then, as a Jew, talking to the Samaritan woman would have been scandalous. Yet God's providential purpose was for her to hear the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is why we read at the beginning of chapter that Christ needed to go through Samaria. So he offers her eternal life by comparing the water that was in the well with the greater living water that Jesus gives to those who believe in him. He says those who drink the water from the well will thirst again, but by receiving his living water, it becomes a fountain of water that is, is in our souls and springs up to everlasting life. Well, of course, her not fully understanding what Jesus is offering asks for this water so she will no longer be thirsty when Jesus then confronts her over her sin. Because, you see, she's living in both marital and sexual sin as one who's been divorced five times and is now living with a man who's not even her husband. You know what happens when you're confronted with your sin? Well, it makes us feel uncomfortable, right? We don't like talking about our sin. We don't like being confronted with our sin. So rather than her responding with, humility and with repentance she like us tends to prefer avoiding the truth you know, we may rationalize our sin or uh, more likely change the subject when confronted with our sin and that's exactly what she does here she changes the subject after jesus speaks of her life of marital and sexual sin she knows He's not merely any ordinary man. That he must have had these secrets revealed to him by God himself. And so we read her response to him in these verses. When, we, when, when uh, she says there in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Do you see how she's trying to change the subject there? I perceive that you are a prophet, and so our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She here respectfully addresses him as sir, and then says that she believes him to be a prophet sent from God, and so she is, is, is almost wanting to distract him by speaking of this whole debate over worship, asking him for God's answer to the question of worship. After all, this is the very issue that divided Jews from Samaritans. Where should we worship? And this goes back, for example, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy 12. You see, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the, called the Pentateuch. So for them, their Bible only included Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So they would look to Deuteronomy, for example, and they would read in verses 5 to 7 these words. 
But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your uh, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which he, you have put in your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And since the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, they saw this place as the first place that Abraham built where he built an altar and entered the promised land. It was here in Samaria. It's what we read in Genesis 12, where Abraham comes to the land of Shechem that's overlooked by Mount Gerizim. And it's there that he sets up the first altar to God in this land. This was reinforced by their translation of Deuteronomy 12.5, which read, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God has chosen. Do you hear the difference? In their mind, the Lord their God had already chosen this place. Which is why through Deuteronomy we continue to read of the importance of this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Where God's people through Deuteronomy, we see, go there. As Israel enters the promised land. So it was on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that the Samaritans had built their own temple to worship God. And Jacob's well sat at the foot of Mount Gerizim, which means that here Jesus and the Samaritan woman would have likely seen the ruins of the Samaritan temple there on the mountain as they talked. But unlike the Samaritans, the Jews had all of the Old Testament scriptures, and they recognized that Deuteronomy 12 was speaking of a place to come. That there would be a temple that God called them to build in Jerusalem through David's son Solomon. That it continued through the years. And it showed God's choice of Jerusalem then in its temple as the place where God's people were to worship. So we find the Samaritan woman in John 4 trying to change the subject and asking this controversial question. Who was right in God's sight, the Samaritans or the Jews? In other words, where is the proper place for God's people to worship? Do you see how she tries to change the subject from the state of her soul? to a theological controversy? And frankly, we can do the same thing today so that we avoid our own sinfulness and our need for God's grace. I appreciate the comments of Gordon Ketty when he writes, is this not typical even today? How much easier it is to discuss denominational differences or the number of members in the church or when the choir meets or whatever Anything that can be used as a smokescreen to cover a determination to avoid facing the real spiritual and practical issues of the gospel in a serious personal faith relationship to the Lord is fair game. 
People will talk about anything but sin, anything but personal faith, anything but the practice of truth, anything but the claims of Christ. And how pious it sounds to cover it all by talking church. How easy it is for us to avoid our own sin. And being drawn into various theological subjects and controversies. Brothers and sisters, may we learn from the Samaritan woman that we cannot avoid our sinfulness before God. Because you can try to distract yourself and others from your sin by entering into debates over various Bible controversies. You can dismiss your sin because of different interpretations of Scripture. Or you can deny your sinfulness by simply ignoring or rejecting God's Word. But listen, none of this will change God's condemnation of judgment against you in your sin. And that's what the Samaritan woman will realize through this conversation. And that's why Jesus, in His wisdom, continues to speak with her about worship. Because the Gospel reveals how we can be reconciled with God and truly worship Him. So He wants to move her beyond the theological controversy of where to worship and get to the very much more important issue of how we can worship, which ultimately comes through faith in Him, in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first step that we take in these verses where there is this asking about true worship through the woman. But then in the second step, we, we go on to take in this uh, story uh, in verses 21 to 22 in, in Jesus' answering about true worship. How does Jesus respond? By saying that times are changing. We've gone to read in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, he begins by addressing her as woman, which frankly can sound condescending today or demeaning in English. But the same word is actually used by Jesus on the cross when he addresses his mother Mary. So th th this isn't a cold-hearted or demeaning words that, that he speaks, but this would be almost similar to how we use the word ma'am in the South. He speaks to her as a woman he deeply cares for and then encourages this woman to believe his words as the truth. He knows she needs to reorient her mind to a new way of thinking about worship. Because Christ is bringing in a new age of worship. One that will end the debate over the right place of worship. Because what does he say? That you will worship the Father. We will worship God as our Father through Christ. Since we are reconciled with God rather than alienated from Him in our sin. And when this 
reconciliation happens and he is our father, look, we can worship him anywhere. Through the new hour, which comes through Jesus's ministry for us, wherever God's people gather is a holy place where we meet with God in worship. So it's not on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshiped. It's not on the mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem where God's people worship. It's wherever God's people are saved by Christ and gather together to worship Him, which is why we uh, sing so many hymns that express these truths, including an old hymn by William Cowper. Listen to how this hymn begins. Jesus, where'er your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Where'er they seek you, you are found, and every place is hallowed ground. But there is a difference between the worship of the Samaritans and the Jews. We go on to read about this in verse 22, where Jesus says to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We worship what, uh, or sorry, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. See, the Samaritans don't know who they worship or what they worship since they don't have God's complete revelation of himself in the rest of the Old Testament. And without the Old Testament scriptures, they do not know God and cannot truly worship him. You see, without the scriptures, we cannot know God since he reveals himself to us through his word. And they had cut themselves off to his revelation in not accepting or in rejecting so much of his word through the Old Testament. You see then how the Samaritans may have been sincere in their worship of God, but they were sincerely wrong. And it was false worship because their worship was not toward the true God, but of God of their own making. They didn't know God in their sin. That's why the Samaritans followed their fathers rather than Scripture. Did you see how the woman said that in verse 20? She said, Our fathers worshipped on the mountain rather than listening to the Father. God. So there's no biblical authority then behind their worship. And they had invented their own way to approach God and worship, which he had never commanded or approved of. So you have the Samaritans who worshipped falsely because they did not know God. But the Jews knew what they worshipped because they had the full word of God, Genesis through Malachi, in which God promised through his covenants to save his people from their sins. So, for example, you can think of the beginning of Psalm 76, where we read, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. See, it's through the Jews that the promised Messiah would come to bring and give salvation. And after all of these centuries, the Samaritan woman is now speaking with the very one God had promised. Because this is... Jesus, 
was and is God in the flesh. It is Jesus who lives righteously in obedience to God rather than unrighteously in sin against God. It is Jesus who dies under the the, the very wrath of God on the cross. It is Jesus then who not only provides us with the righteousness we do not have in our sin, but who takes the very punishment and judgment of God we deserve for our sin. As He hangs on the cross and dies in our place. You see then how it's through God's promise of salvation to the Jews that a Jewish man came to forgive our sins to restore our worship. We know what we worship, Jesus says, for salvation is of the Jews. He is the very one who is our Savior, who saves us from the wrath of God. And His salvation extends to all the nations of the world, which starts here with Samaria. You see, at this well, the gospel begins to cross cultures so that Samaritans, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, will be saved. So I ask you this morning, have you been saved by Christ? Listen, no one is too far from the grace of God to be saved. Not even a guilty and shameful woman with all of her sordid past and her sexual sin. So whether you are living under the guilt and shame of sexual sins like this Samaritan woman, or you are living under the guilt and shame of your own sin, whatever that may be, salvation has come in Jesus Christ. He is the only way to be saved. So why salvation is of the Jews. And it's through Christ then that we can come to the Father in true worship. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Confess your sins to God and come to Christ as the one who has died for your sins. And has, through God, not only are your sins forgiven, but listen, you are reconciled with God. You have an eternal life to enjoy with Him. And then can come before Him and truly worship Him for such a great salvation. And so Jesus answers what true worship is in response to the Samaritan woman's question, but he's still not done. Because this brings us then to the third and final step that we come to in this story and, and in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman where Jesus announces true worship. 
The announcing of true worship in verses 23 and 24. Because in these verses, Jesus continues by saying that this coming age of worship has now begun in him. The Samaritan woman had been focused on the where of worship, but Jesus redirects her to the how of worship. Because this is the important question we need to ask. So we read in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. See how our worship is forever changed with the coming of Christ? And His death and resurrection for sinners? How God transforms us through salvation in Jesus Christ so that we will be true worshipers in Him. Why does God save us? truly worship him and believers in christ are true worshipers who worship god as our father right who will worship the father how does he become our father rather than our judge who condemns us because in christ we are reconciled with god and he then adopts us as his children we come into the family of faith. He is then our Father whom we worship. But how do true worshipers worship the Father? This verse goes on to say, in spirit and truth. And listen, this is vital for us to understand. The difference between a false worship of God and the true worship of God that the true worship of God is in spirit and truth. So first we see here that we must worship God in spirit. Now, this can mean that we worship God in the Holy Spirit. After all, when we believe in Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, has changed our heart to believe in Christ and then comes to dwell in us as a seal of our salvation in Christ. So we can only truly worship God through the Holy Spirit that has given us life and dwells in us. But the Spirit here can also refer to our spirit or our soul. Since there is no definite article before the word spirit here, in other words, we don't read in verse 23, that we will worship the Father in the Spirit. But it simply says that we will worship the Father in Spirit. You know, God's Word often refers to mankind as made up of body and spirit. We have two parts, body and spirit, or flesh and soul. So this spiritual worship would then be worship that comes internally from the heart, rather than merely externally through specific religious practices or rituals. Now, in understanding which one Jesus means to worship God in spirit, is this the Holy Spirit or is this our spirit? As is often the case, I'm not sure we really have to choose. We can only worship God if the Holy Spirit regenerates our spirits and gives us life. And it's through our spirits, then, that we will then worship God from the heart. 
So we must worship God in spirit. But then Jesus also says we must worship God in truth. Which means we must worship God through Christ, who is the truth. What does Jesus say later in John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So we worship God in truth, who is Christ, and through the Scriptures, which are the truth, and reveal Christ to us. Worshiping God in truth, then, includes both a right knowledge of whom we worship and also a proper understanding of how we are to worship Him. Because in Scripture, God reveals both who He is and how He is to be worshipped, which is truth. Do you see, then, that true worship includes both the mind and the heart? What does God promise through Christ in the New Covenant? You may remember in Hebrews 8, building on the promise of Jeremiah 31 of the New Covenant, we read in Hebrews 8.10, God promising, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Worship involves both mind and heart. Spirit and truth. But there's a danger of neglecting one over the other. Either spirit or truth. You see, without the spirit, worshiping in the truth is dead orthodoxy. Where we may say and do the right things, but not with changed hearts of faith and devotion to Christ. So worshiping in truth is not enough. It's not true worship. We're not true worshipers if we only have the truth. But in the same way, without the truth, worshiping in the Spirit's not enough. If we worship in Spirit, we, it may be emotional and passionate worship, but it is not worship, true worship of our God. Because it does not refresh our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ or renew our minds with God's word of truth. I like how the Puritan preacher Joseph Carroll summarizes this. He writes, In spirit respects the inward power, in truth the outward form. The former strikes at hypocrisy, the latter strikes at idolatry. The one opposes the inventions of our heads, the other the looseness of our hearts in worship. You see then how worship must be both in spirit and in truth. Brothers and sisters, don't miss how we worship the Father in spirit and truth. Because it's not through our efforts, but through God and His grace in Christ. That's what we go on to see at the end of verse 23. We read, true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. You see, we are able to worship the Father as true worshipers because He seeks us to worship Him in spirit and truth. What love and compassion then. 
God has towards us. That he has chosen to seek us out and to save us in Christ so that we will then gather together as his church and truly worship him. So it is God who gives us the spirit and truth needed to truly worship him. Which is why our salvation is all of grace. And why our worship is only possible because of God and his provision for us through Christ and transforming our souls. God gives our spirits life. And God reveals to us his truth through Christ in the scriptures. Which then brings us to verse 24. Where we have this great declaration of God that God is spirit. Jesus wants this woman to be clear about who God truly is. He is not like one of us. How easy it is for us to begin to craft and mold God in our image. And yet God here is not like us. He is spirit. He does not have a body of flesh. The theological words that we may often use is that God's incorporeal. He is immaterial which means that he is unlike his creation. He is not like his image bearers. And so we can remember the Baptist Catechism that many of us have, have learned and benefited from, the series of questions and answers that teach us truths about God and his word. But in the Baptist Catechism, the question is, what is God? And of course, it's built through what we read here in John 4. God is a spirit, infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And it's this God who is spirit, who is invisible and unknowable to us. Yet in love, he chooses to reveal himself to us through Jesus Christ, which is why John begins this gospel by writing, in the first chapter, verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. How do we know God, who is Spirit? Through Christ, who reveals Him to us. What then does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Do you remember? You know what's a chapter earlier from, from uh, John chapter 4? Well, of course, John chapter 3. But what happens in John chapter 3 is another encounter Jesus has. But unlike the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, the encounter in chapter 3 is with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And what does Jesus say to Nicodemus when they meet? Well, let's look at chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Jesus says, We must be born again through the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, it's because God is Spirit that we must worship Him in spirit and truth. That's what we read there in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you know the wonderful news as this chapter continues? It's exactly what we see the Samaritan woman doing. Because her encounter with Jesus transforms her life. She recognizes Jesus as the one who saves her soul by giving her living water and believes and trusts in him, which is why we read of her then leaving her water pot there at the well, running into the city, starting to speak to others about Christ. She receives salvation through Christ, and she can't help but share what he had done with others. And so it's through her testimony we find many Samaritans coming to Christ and believing in his word. There then, we start to see in Samaria the breaking out of worship, true worship. Samaritans will begin to come together and worship God in spirit and truth. What is true worship then? What does Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? That true worship must be in spirit and truth. So wherever Christ's churches gather in his presence to worship him in spirit and truth, listen, we are standing on holy ground because we are meeting with God in worship. So what makes our meetings holy is not where we worship. It's not even what we do in worship. But it's in our coming together in Christ's name to worship God in spirit and truth that makes our meetings holy. So you don't need to go to the Middle East to draw near to God. There's nothing special about the land of the Middle East. Do you know what is special? Gathering together with God's people and worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. Because we draw near to God through faith in Christ when we worship Him in spirit and truth. So you can save your money, you can fly over to Israel, and you can be moved by what you see. But you will not draw near to God by any of these things. Jesus shows us what true worship is. Worshiping God in spirit and truth. So why J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican who I so love, wrote of these verses that our Lord tells her that true and acceptable worship depends not on the place in which it is offered, but on the state of the worshiper's heart. So as we have seen so far in this series on worshiping in God's presence, God calls our meeting to worship. And God schedules our meeting to worship. And God runs our meeting to worship. 
But here we also see that God must transform our meeting to worship. You see, we can come to our church's worship service on the day that he has appointed and do all the things that he has commanded us to do. We can read the Bible and preach the Bible and pray the Bible and sing the Bible and see the Bible. But if we have not been transformed by God's grace in Jesus Christ, then we are not worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And there is not true worship taking place here. We worship, truly worship, God as our Father in spirit and truth. May we then not settle for outward forms of religious worship, trusting in coming to church, attending worship services, or going through the motions when we meet with God. But may we meet with God as true worshipers who inwardly worship Him in spirit and truth. Because it is this worship that is true worship of our Father. So let's pray. Father, may no one here continue to be concerned with the external realities of worship. But they will first embrace the internal need of worship so that Christ will save our souls because you have sought us in love so that we will become true worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. May our worship, Father, at Cornerstone Fellowship Church be a worship that is worship in spirit and truth. May everyone here be those who are true worshipers of you because we have received such a great salvation in Christ. Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.